This is deep dish, right? Yeah, well, let's get deep. So, so I'm, I'm going deep on both sides. Timothy Hughes, man, <laughs> finally. <laughs> finally, long time coming. We got right. you here. Yeah. Oh, man, oh, this one to be one of the ones. Man. Yeah, man, I'm hoping so. This one to be one so. of the ones, man. And I'm going to tell you one of my fondest moments of you. And this is when we kind of first met when I came back from China, right? You came up to me and said, hey, man, I was watching something. Uh, I think he was. I think he was watching something of mine or something. Black Americans making the march first. Yeah, he was watching something. Yes. And you was with your son, I believe. So my grandson was there. Your grandson mm -hmm. was there, and you was like, "Man, my grandson seen you." He was like, yeah, his hair just like mine, type of thing. But yes. like, what they did from him though. Yes. And I'll never forget that moment, man, yeah. because yeah. that's the whole point of when I think of representation and content and just doing things in my own unique way yeah. um, and not conforming my blackness in any type of way, form or fashion, yeah. is to hopefully liberate others to yes. do the same thing or feel that power that comes to that or just know that you can be yourself and look how you want to look That's and right. still be successful yeah. um, in life and whatever that means for you. So, man, I, I'll never forget that moment, man. Yeah, man, the, vis the visibility piece is so important, especially in the communities that I organize in. We got you know, black and brown constituencies in Nashville and throughout yeah. the state of Tennessee. And oftentimes we don't get seen in the same way uh, and with the same nuance as other folks. And yeah. so uh, it was great for Caden to see, you know, the brother with natural hair and his locks, he's doing yeah. his locks out since then. Um, and so it's just, it's great that we have those examples and those role models and people to look up to yeah. uh, because that visibility is so important. We see it in the stories that get told about Nashville and there are certain parts of the community that aren't treated in the same way as other parts. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's important for us to be seen and be and be viewed in the ways that we want to be seen and viewed. Man, it's the, I, we're going to get into some a whole lot of black voters. Yeah, stuff. we're going to do but a lot I, of black I, stuff. I, I want to get a little bit of the origin story of what, what that looks like for you. We know you're a Fisite. Yeah. And so yeah. what was your journey before coming to Nashville and attending Fisk? And like the inspiration around like kind of, was it a catalyst? Was it somebody? Was it something that really inspires you to be the person and do the work that you do today? Yeah, man. Well, shout out to you, first of all. <laughs> you know, long time watcher, first time attendee. Uh, I can remember when Deep did conversations and you and I were just talking about it as an idea and to, to see how it's grown. Yeah. Uh, over 200 episodes. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's really an honor and a privilege to be here. I feel like this is, you know, like home. This yeah. is a sacred space. It and is. So, it's definitely uh, It's an honor to be here and on the show with you. Uh, and shout out to you for all the work that you're doing in the community. Um, my personal story takes a lot of detours and intersections. When I was a kid, um, my mother's school teacher, my father, was in the military and later in law enforcement. So we moved a lot. We moved 15 times in 17 years. Wow. So I'm always kind of the new person in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and so when I got the opportunity to come away to school, leaving Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and coming to Nashville, I'd never been to Nashville, uh, and came here, uh, and ultimately became a student at Fisk, became a Jubilee singer, uh, got an opportunity to travel I around the country. Right. <laughs> you got a whole Jubilee singer. Yeah. <laughs> so, having, so the history of Music City and all of those things were things that I was kind of aware of, but just being here and being a part of that legacy was really amazing and incredible. Shout out to the Wakanda Chorale, Wakanda Forever. Uh, uh, there are an organization of, uh, of singers and performers, some form of Jubilee singers, others who are part of the aristocratic bands, now the Grammy award-winning aristocratic bands at TSU, uh, some professionals, some, some semi-professionals uh, who come together and sing and celebrate black culture, black heritage, black community, uh, and have a, a kind of a, a safe haven for yeah. folks who uh, have a musical legacy and connection. And so being a part of those kinds of groups 
helps to sustain me in the work of social justice movement. Um, but when I originally came to Nashville and ultimately became a student at Fisk, um, I came during an era and a time uh, when you know we were learning about these great you know Fiskites in history, the Du Boises and the John Lewises and the Diane Nashes and those folks who contributed to the the, the legacy of social justice in Nashville in the 19 uh, first in the in the 1800s with the with the Julie mm -hmm. Singers and the founding of the university, but then later with the 1960s civil rights movements and sit-ins. Uh, so many of those great luminaries came through Fisk, uh, and so having being a part of that community and that legacy was very special. Uh, I was a student there and studied uh, religion and philosophy, so learned a lot from uh, from folks like Revis Mitchell. And shout out to the designer of this shirt. I want to <laughs> point it out real quick. Yeah. We got Duke, Revis, Maupin, uh, Linwood, and Friend, those Fisk guys who were in the audience who were from the eras of the 80s, 90s, 2000s, early 2010s, and so forth, will remember some of those luminaries and names who helped to make us into uh, the Fisk family that we are. Uh, but there were folks who were on campus um, who really had an indelible, an indelible impression on my acculturation and my growth. Uh, and then later, you know, I, I leave Fisk, go into corporate America, work for these Fortune 500 companies, and I'm feeling kind of disconnected from that legacy in mm -hmm. some ways, uh, making some good money but not really making a good difference or getting into good mm -hmm. trouble. So. Um, so I felt kind of compelled to get involved more in social justice work uh, in the aftermath of the Trayvon Martin killing mm. um, in 2012. And okay. so that's kind of where the, 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 the major marker started yeah. for me. Uh, I had the opportunity to connect with some folks who I knew who were students at Vanderbilt um, before then, uh, folks like Rashida Fatuga from Gideon's Army. Yeah. She uh, kind of gave me my first introduction and connection to movement work here locally in Nashville. Uh, supporting the work of the Driving While Black Report in 2016, which was kind of a canary in the coal mine yeah. uh, for what was going to happen with Daniel Hambridge, Jacques Clemens, those folks, uh, and later the creation of the Community Oversight Board. So that's kind of like the, the quick and dirty yeah, version. Yeah, yeah. Um, but having those connections and relationship to some of the folks who were on the ground, mm -hmm. my first paid organizing uh, position was with a group called the Equity Alliance. Okay. Uh, Charlene Oliver, Tequila Johnson, shout out to them, black women doing great work. Um, uh, being a part of the Tennessee Black Voter Project, where we mm -hmm. uh, got busy registering black voters uh, in the state of Tennessee in all 95 counties, and the work was so successful, we, we registered nearly 100,000 black and brown voters throughout the state of Tennessee. Wow. And the work was so good, right? We, we, we're meeting people at hookah bars and uh, local nightclubs and at the work, the, the, the watcheteria and, you know what I'm saying, gas stations, folks right. where people were hanging out. But where we had to, we had opportunities to have deep and probative conversations mm -hmm. with black and brown folks in community and other folks too, uh, to kind of figure out what we needed to be centering as our black print for right. outreach and issue-based advocacy in Tennessee. And we were so successful that the state of Tennessee tried to criminalize mass voter registration mm. statewide because of the work of groups like the Equity Alliance. That's crazy. That's how you know you're powerful. That's how you know you're doing when they, something. When they try to criminalize what you're doing, <laughs> you can't That's, get no bigger hater than you that. You can't get no bigger hater than that. And so uh, so shout out to the Tennessee legislature. We, we coming for you. Anyway, um, <laughs> the work that we were doing around registering and educating black voters was, just, was very uh, inspiring to me. Uh, and then later led to me having the opportunity to work with some national groups like Black Voters Matter. Shout out to Cliff Albright and Latasha uh, um, uh, Brown for the amazing and incredible work that they have been doing uh, in a number of different contexts throughout the Deep South and the Midwest, uh, making sure that Black Voters Matter to everybody mm -hmm. and making sure that Black communities can really tap into the power yeah. uh, that we have at our disposal. And so 
having the opportunity to work with some local groups, some national groups, uh, and really just to learn yeah. um, from, from people who have really been luminaries in this space and their examples of, of commitment and dedication to, to black people and black communities is really why I do this work. Man, so look, I'm y'all got the bio now. Y'all got it? <laughs> He's tapped in. And so that's why this brother is here to really, we, we really finna extrapolate on some real deep, deep things uh, since around um, blackness in this social change, social justice movement. Yeah. Um, and, and also, of course, you know, keep it solution based in what can we do yeah. as a community and maybe even what can allies do as well. Absolutely. Um, to support black political power. Yeah. Um, how would you define black political power in Nashville, the Middle Tennessee area today? Yeah, um, I appreciate that question. And so I'm reminded when I think about black political power and black uh, social justice movements of a quote from, um, from one of my luminaries in my head, one of my mentors in my head, Dr. Cornell West. Okay. And so he talks about- Who's running for president? Who's running for president. <laughs> Shout out to, to Dr. Cornell West, 85. Yep. Um, and what Dr. West describes when he talks about black people and, 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 and people in general, but I think it's very, uh, very seminal for black people, is he talks about how, how justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. And it's just like tenderness and, and yeah. kindness is what love looks like in private. I think that with black people and, and, and oftentimes what has happened to us and the experience that we've had both with uh, the institution of chattel slavery, uh, black liberative movements, the struggle for black lives, the movement for black lives, is we're always trying to tap in to the humanity that right. we all share. Right. And that's a global humanity that's a part of our global experience. Uh, as oppressed peoples, but also as liberating peoples. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's really about understanding the ways in which black people relate to one another, yeah. our cultural nuances and our connections, but also the ways in which we are a part of this legacy of struggle. Yeah. And that, that struggle is not just about sad times and frustration and the blues and all of those things. It also is about liberation. So the example yeah. of the Jubilee Singers, these were people who were, you know, mere years separated from institution of, you know, actual institution of chattel slavery. Uh, and we're creating this, this university. Right. And we're at a stage right now where it's on a precipice of failure. And it seems like so often in black communities, we are right on the precipice of this major cat catastrophe. But they come together and they use the sorrow songs, mm -hmm. the jubilee songs, songs that are about liberation and freedom and struggle and hard times. And they bring those songs to the masses. Right. And it becomes the first popularized music form that is American made, mm. that is traveling all over the world. Mm. The story of how Nashville became the music city and the fact that the Jubilee Singers are traveling on their international tour uh, with Queen Victoria. And the first thing that, they, that she says when she hears them, she's like, oh my God, their voices are right. so beautiful. You must come from the music city. Right. And so a lot of folks just don't know that history. And so yeah. they think Music City is a moniker because of country music and all the music, you know, industry folks right. and all those things. But having that legacy of struggle and freedom yeah. and having that at the root of so much of what we experience here in Nashville, we really have an embarrassment of riches. And then yeah. to have both that story connected to the longer story of of liberative struggle in Nashville yeah. through the 1960s with the Diane Nashes and John Lewis's and those mm -hmm. folks who were civil rights leaders demanding that you know the city be as good as its promise and understanding that legacy of struggle when Diane Nash confronted then Mayor, Mayor, Mayor Ben West 
at the Capitol and said, do you think it's right, right. for black people to be treated as second-class citizens mm -hmm. but be expected to be contributors to the economy? Do you think that we should desegregate these lunch counters? As a right. man, do you see argument? Um, and so this is really top of mind for me, mostly because of a lot of the conversations that I've been having with young people who really want to get into community organizing, and those who are young at heart, too, who yeah. just really want to understand more about how movements grow and build. Uh, and so one of the things that uh, I mentioned in the book and that I'll, I'll mention here is that a lot of what I've learned about how to be an effective community organizer, I really learned as a kid from my grandmother. Mm. Um, my grandmother, um, uh, shout out to uh, Alina Nellie Johnson. <laughs> Uh, for being my first example of what it means to be a community organizer because when the community needed food, needed yeah. resources and support, my grandmother had an eighth grade education and, yeah. you know, two shotguns. And so, you know, <laughs> what you're not going to do is play with her. Um, but also, what she taught me um, through what I describe as a gumbo litany, you know, yeah. she putting together that, that gumbo and making sure that everybody in the community eats is that you know we need to address the material concerns yeah. and conditions of our people mm. before even before Jesus ministered to the people he fed them. Yeah. And so she's she's a living embodiment of an example of what it means to bring people together in unity. You bring mm -hmm. them around, you know, a pot of gumbo and you feed them. Yeah. And then you address and listen to the needs and the concerns that they have. Right. My grandmother used, you know, what I call God's divine arithmetic. She had one mouth and yeah. two ears. And so yeah. she always listened. Mm. twice as much as she spoke yeah and and she was always there to be a sounding board for the people in the community who desperately needed somebody to go to a lot of our folks have been through deeply deeply traumatizing experiences both as a community and as individuals and we don't have a lot of people to talk to yeah uh, and black men especially oftentimes yeah. do not have folks that they feel comfortable being able to open up to and be vulnerable with. And so if folks are interested in becoming a community organizer, mm -hmm. before you can organize the community, you really got to be able to address the deeply rooted traumas mm. that you have within yourself. Organize yourself. Organize yourself. What makes mm. you tick? Yeah. Why is it that you want to do certain things and want to avoid other things? What is it right. about the world in which you are navigating uh, that has impacted you and how has it uh, impacted you in ways that maybe you weren't aware of. Yeah. Uh, and what can you do about that? What can you do to address those needs and concerns? How do you tap into the power yeah. that you have as an individual so that you can help others to reveal the power that they have in themselves? Yeah. Now, man, that's that's deep. And I can't wait for that book to come out. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. We yeah. all got books. We all got books. <laughs> <laughs> Something yeah. in the water. You I'm, know? I'm writing the book that I wish I had had when I was starting as an organizer. You fill in the void. Yeah. And that's what yeah. it's all about. Man, um, let's get into the voting. Yeah, here <clears throat> this we go. Be, let's let's yeah, get into this, it. Let's get into it, man. Let's get into it. So we've had discussions about voting. Yeah. And has voting been beneficial to black folks mm -hmm. um, since we've been, you know, permitted to vote? Yeah. Um, speak on that a little bit mm -hmm. and your thought process of voting. What should people go into the mindset when they're voting? How should they be voting? Because, again, it's, it's so many different levels when you're talking about when it comes to black people voting. Right. Because I think we carry so much with that because people literally died and bled yes. for us to have the right yes. to vote. Yes. Um, does that supersede something if it's not beneficial to you? If you do, you know, so I want us to unpack that. Let's unpack it. And yeah. have a, a mini master class on what that means um, and give something for people to think about. Yeah. When we're talking about voting and 
Are we voting for tangible things? Self-interest. Right. right. And if it's not into my, like, you right. know, what skin color of the candidate, all of those things, right? And then yes. I want to pivot and kind of talk about this mayoral election. Yes. I appreciate you setting the stage for that. So, like, I want to get a couple of things in context as we're talking about let's, let's the go. importance of black voting. So, on the one hand, we've got to talk about the history of how we got to this moment because, you know, we're in this very anti-CRT, <laughs> anti-history moment. So I want the audience to really be able to get the benefit of why it is yeah. coming to this conversation where I'm coming from. So we start at, you know, discussions around chattel slavery and how so much of America's incubation has been kind of in this crucible of oppression, right? right? So we have all of these multiple marginalized groups and peoples who are coming to this land. First, the indigenous who were already here, right, right are supplanted and, and driven in through genocide and threats of violence by the colonizers who come here, mm -hmm. clear the land, take so many of the people away, and there's, there's this, you know, this birth in blood that happens in this country. Right. And then as a result of the, the, the uh, transatlantic slave trade and individuals who were brought here, forced to come here in chains to work the land, 400 years of oppression, so much deeply rooted trauma that happens as a result of that. And, and, in, and then as, out of that trauma comes things like, you know, the, the, the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments mm -hmm. to the Constitution, the Emancipation Proclamation before that, uh, uh, various uh, struggles for fights and fights for liberation from indigenous people, other peoples on the land for yeah. a long period of time. So there's a long, long uh, um, history that we've got to talk about before we even get to the struggle for enfranchisement and voting, right. particularly for black people. But now that we're here and we're talking about that after the Emancipation Proclamation, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, black men specifically having the, uh, the, 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 the right, quote unquote, to vote in the United States, but really not really having the opportunity. Right. Because especially in the South, you right. might try to exercise that right, right and you might very, very well be risking your life in right. doing so. Uh, and so after the period of reconstruction where there are some gains and some opportunities, some black people even get elected to public office in, in deep southern states like Mississippi and mm -hmm. Alabama and Georgia and those places, uh, but there's this ongoing struggle. Right. And what we see is in the aftermath of the Civil War, right, there's this massive backlash right. to try to, to limit the, uh, the opportunities that are available during the Reconstruction period. And so for many years after that, the, 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 the Jim Crow laws and, the, and, the, and the, the codes that basically govern the function and the behavior of black people, right. both in the South and in the North, are really putting pressure on those rights and responsibilities that we have around voting. And so there's this ambivalence right. that is constantly happening around black men and then later black women after the signing of, uh, of the, the 19th Amendment where right. white women get the right to vote. Black yeah. women are really able to try to push and get some gains and opportunities to demand that their rights be heard as well in the 1920s. So fast forward we are. Uh, in this moment in the 1960s where these, these struggles over civil rights and human rights and segregation and all of those things really starting in their impetus in the 1950s with the Brown versus Board of Education decision that seeks to desegregate schools and public accommodations uh, and later the Montgomery bus boycotts and shout out to Montgomery who is still in the news now right. you know <laughs> if you see if you see a folding chair and you don't think Montgomery you're missing out on your opportunity but so many people. We got to leave that at Montgomery, too. <laughs> not, 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 the, not the Montgomery ball, but right, the right. bus Because I want, I want to bring something up about that. that yeah. just, when I think about organizing, 
that's like top tier for me. Oh yeah, but, yeah, oh yeah. But uh, top yeah, tier organizing. Top, top tier organizing. But these ongoing struggles, and some of this stuff is you know heavy. And you know we talk about fights and struggles yeah. for liberation, but we also talking about black look, black joy and liberation, right. and the rise of blues and rise of jazz and and house music and right. bounce music and all of these forms of hip hop. Shout out to hip hop, fifty years. Yeah, and, I mean sure. that's an amazing milestone for our people to celebrate yeah. and our contributions to be acknowledged. But we got all of these things in the mixing bowl. Yeah, and all of these things to, to, to go back to the to metaphor about about the gumbo. All of this is in the gumbo, the rule of of enslavement and segregation, and and all of the other forms of of, of, of oppression yeah. and, and 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 disappointment and frustration. But they are the base of what make our country what it is, and the base of the wealth upon which the country was built, and the power dynamics yeah. that Black people have played a role in and been leveraged and a part of are critically important in so many of those social movements. Uh, and thus, just, you know, just here in the United States, not to mention the, the global movements for right. black liberation all over the world. And so we're in this moment now, you know, in the aftermath of the Obama presidency, which took a long time to get here right. in 2008, but finally, you know, change has come to America, which right. was a wonderful pronouncement of hope and change from the Obama uh, presidency, but also, you know, we see that the hood still look the same as it did, right. you know, multiple generations before and right. even thereafter. So we got we got many, many challenges that we face within the black community that are often uh, connected to this issue of class and not just race. And yeah. so working class and poor yeah. black folk are treated with a particular amount of caste disdain. system. Caste system right yeah. here in the United States, sure. right? And we see that uh, as evidenced in the ways in which many black communities are disinvested in and disempowered and underutilized and under and underdeveloped. Right. Uh, and, and certainly uh, in, in some ways are subjected to predatory investment. Right. We saw that in the aftermath of the 2020 tornadoes yeah. and during the height of the uprisings <clears throat> that were happening in the country. They're talking got, about that happening in Hawaii now. Absolutely, so we see the same yep. kind of predatory uh, efforts being made to, to displace mm -hmm. uh, the indigenous indigenous folks from the island and then take over the land uh, by colonizers. And so we saw some of those same dynamics at play yeah. in March of 2020 after those tornadoes in North and East Nashville. Exactly. Where folks were coming in and seeing people in a vulnerable position, offering them money right. and saying, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you to be able to you know, start over again. Right. But if you get a small amount of money, there's nowhere in Nashville now that you can live with right. that amount of money that they were offering. Exactly. So groups like the Equity Alliance and Stand Up Nashville, shout out to Odessa Kelly and those folks over there who saw what was happening right. in their Don't Sell Out North initiative and say, hey, listen, you don't have to sell right. your home right away. We can we can try to help you to triage and provide support mm -hmm. until FEMA and some of the government agencies can come in and provide you with some additional support. So there are so many factors right. that have impacted the lives of black people. So it's important that we use whatever tool is in our toolbox right. to make sure that black people feel connected to the process of civic engagement, yeah. are not being just impacted by right. uh, these systems and structures and institutions and individuals, but have a way right. to engage with that process that gives them the sense of empowerment right. that they truly and rightfully have. Uh, and so we should be engaging in whatever way that's possible. That looks like voting, right? Yep. That looks like organizing through mm -hmm. a community lens or through individual organizations coming together and coalitions being built. It looks like making sure that we are restoring and addressing the issues uh, and, and the impacts individually on the lives, particularly of poor and working class folks and indigenous mm -hmm. folks and, and immigrants to the community. Because when we talk about black voters, we often talk about black American folks, right. but we, we, we don't want to leave out our folks from the Caribbean, our folks right. from the continent who are a part of this discussion and this, this process as well. And so we, we've got to 
understand that there there are both and propositions. Right. We should be looking at this, and I think that this is a, a, a dual-tiered strategy that I, I've learned in some of the organizing spaces that I've been a part of. Just like in history when it took, you know, an Emancipation Proclamation, and we also had Harriet Tubman out there at yeah. the same time with the Underground Railroad, yeah. right? We got to have an Emancipation Proclamation where we address issues of policy mm -hmm. and change some of the policies and structures within our government and our institution. Yeah. But we also got to have an Underground Railroad yeah. where we free our people by any means necessary. And, and I think that's important to bring out that we need all of those collectively. Yes. And they don't have to be adversarial to one another. Absolutely it's not. It's like, hey, whichever one, whichever one's resource best benefits you at that moment, take advantage of that. That's right. But it's not one is better over the other. I fully and, agree. And, and unfortunately, sometimes those sentiments are articulated um, in the organizing space, yeah. um, which just is not healthy. Yeah, man. And so... Hopefully that's in the book somewhere. Yeah, that's going to be We're going to talk about that. Yeah. So there's a chapter in the book that's called What's Beef, right? So that's a line, you know, that's a line from Biggie Smalls, right, that talks about what happens in the in the aftermath of situations right. when things get a little awry, right? And the yeah. line says, what's beef? Beef is when you make your enemy start your... So it's yeah. like, it's a situation where basically you are at, at loggerheads. Yeah with lots of individuals and it talks about what beef looks like right. in, you know, in hip hop situations, but what beef looks like in the black community and some of these black organizing right. situations can be very different. It could be, you know, one group or one organization kind of moving in or what appears to be moving in on the turf right. of what another organization has been using as its bread and butter. If an organization feels that way, right. this, give, this gives us some gems. Give, right, give right, us right. a little sneak peek of what's in the book. If right. an organization is feeling that way that, hey, Man, I kind of feel like this other organization is kind of in my territory, right? Or in my wheelhouse, and this is this is our thing, right? Yeah. Um, what do you feel the best practices to mitigate that and, yeah. and 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 build not burn the bridge down down and not saying people have to be besties, but yeah. have a healthy relationship and understanding that we we we're both trying to combat these social constructs in a particular way. Yeah. You know, how can we how can we mend this and not feel like we're the enemy of each other because we know we're not. But, you know, hey, some people egos and mm. pride and all of these things, how can one of those sides come to the table and say, "Hey, like like we we it's no issue, it's no beef." Right. It's how no do beef. we mitigate that? Right. Oh, man, I love that question. So, um so I'll start by saying that um, and then we're gonna get back to vote. But yeah, we're gonna get back to vote yeah. in a second. So, so, so there's a there's a famous quotation that I use a lot in my in my facilitation, in my training with uh, with young organizers. And it's a quotation I've heard attributed to many many different people. But the quotation, uh, the uh, the um, approximation of the of the quote is something like this: We have no permanent friends mm. or permanent in enemies, only permanent interests. Mm. And so. That sounds very like savage, first of all, it's savage. But it's also, it's also, it also should inform the ways in which we tactically and strategically operate within movement spaces and organizing spaces. Yeah. Because sometimes the person who's on, in opposition to you in, in some way or maybe has a different tactic or strategy from the way that you would approach things can be used as an iron to help sharp, sharpen your iron, yeah. sharpen your messaging, yeah. help you to be more effective in the way that you do outreach or to help you to reveal the areas mm. that might be unseen in the way that you're using your tactic or strategy. I love that. So, you know, there are going to be folks, right, who are more 
um, the kinds of organizations and groups that are about reforms. I see this all the time when we start talking about police accountability, for example. There are folks who believe that we need to reform policing, that we need to change and have like certain representation among individuals in police departments who uh, are melanated folks who may be black and come from black and brown communities or come from communities that have been impacted so that those communities can be better policed. And other people who say, you know what, we need to just completely scrap this process. I am completely about dismantling this whole structure system, yeah. um, abolitionist, yeah, right? right? And so if we are to look at that, that form of uh, addressing a particular issue around police accountability through the lens either of reform or of abolition, they may appear to be on two different sides of the spectrum, and in many ways they are. But the reality, the lived experience for black people is that whatever the circumstance is, whenever I have an interaction with law enforcement or some other state uh, um, uh, agency, I don't want to be subjected to forms of physical or psychological violence. Right. I don't want to fear for my life when I'm driving home to meet my family. Right. And because both um, there are multiple parties in that process who care about the need for there being better a better relationship between local organizations who do law enforcement and the communities that are being policed, we've got to work together collaboratively whether those changes look like reforms, yeah. whether those changes look like abolition, yeah. whether it looks like a combination of all of those things in a pathway heading toward the other, like we got to be able to work together. Mm -hmm. And while your organization might be for reform and another may be for abolition or vice versa, it doesn't mean that you can't work together, right. that you can't collaborate together. And here's an example of what that looks like in the Nashville context. So back in, uh, in, in 2016, the Driving While Black Report, Gideon's Army is released. Several other partners are a part of it, and they say, look, black people are being stopped at six times more uh, uh, instances in North Nashville Communities 37208, which the Brookings Institution later said uh, was uh, the, the community that had the highest rate of formerly incarcerated persons in the country right. per capita. Uh, we're talking about some 500,000 individuals who have been impacted by the criminal legal system in the state of Tennessee. Right. Many of those folks live in zip codes like 37208. We got to do something about this. Right. This is a powder keg and a spark would light an explosion. We've got to do something to address it. At the time, right. when Gideon's Army and their partners mentioned that this was happening, the police department couldn't argue with the statistics because the data came from their dashboard. Right. It came from their, their information in the Freedom of Information request. And so instead of saying, you know, we don't like your data, instead they, they described the project and the Driving While Black report as morally disingenuous. Now that's, mm. that's basically just SAT words speak for, we right. can't argue with the facts. <laughs> right. But we don't like how the facts make us look. Right. The facts make us look really, really bad, maybe even racist, yeah. in the way that we're implementing right. this stop uh, procedure. Uh, and so Gideon's Army was later validated by a, a group out of New York City called the right. Policing Project when they, a couple of years later, said, you know what? Gideon's Army is right. They're stopping these black people a lot more. Really? Right. <laughs> imagine that. And after it cost the city a quarter of a million dollars, imagine this black-led organization with a black woman at the helm and all these black and indigenous and, and, and immigrant groups as a part of the, the process of collecting data. Uh, somehow they were able to find the truth magically. Um, but at any rate, that information was available to them, and they knew right. that something serious was likely to happen. And so very, very shortly thereafter, Jacquees Clemens in, I think, 2017, mm -hmm. is shot and killed by a law enforcement officer under very unusual circumstances. And not even a year later, Daniel Hambrick is shot and killed. Yeah. Same, same community, same 37208, zip code, same situation. And so what could have happened 
is what often, I mean, what, what, what later happened in, in the, the international and in the, in the national context with Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, and, mm -hmm. and uh, Mike, I mean, uh, uh, George, uh, Floyd. George Floyd in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah. There are these major protests and mm -hmm. uprisings all over the country and around the world. People have got to do something. George Floyd's name, Breonna Taylor's name become hashtags. We cannot allow this to continue. Right. And so all of these uprisings are happening all over the country. But here in Nashville, locally, because of the instances of police violence with uh, Jacquees Clemens and Daniel Hambrick, there were already people coming together from a lot of different yeah. ideological perspectives. You had folks there who were former law enforcement officers to abolitionists mm -hmm. coming together and forming the Community Oversight Now Coalition and saying, We've got to do something about this issue of community oversight of police and police violence and the lack of trust yeah. that exists between community members and law enforcement here in our city. And so shout out to folks like uh, Sekou Franklin, who contributed uh, to the intellectual uh, data collection and, yeah. and the crunching of the numbers, making sure that we got all of those numbers right. right. And all yeah. the folks who participated in the Community Oversight Now Coalition, Melissa Cherry and some others, who really helped to make sure that we were get, we were striking the right chord, mm -hmm. uh, bringing together folks from you know the Beacon Center participated yeah. in the Driving While Black Report, yeah. Gideon's on all these groups coming together, and they finally put together an effort as a part of the Community Oversight Now Coalition to propose something called the Metro Community Oversight Board. I had the opportunity uh, uh, to sit for a brief time on that mm -hmm. board to participate in that process, uh, which was amazing and incredible. But the Community Oversight Board now is threatened, is being threatened, yeah. being being attacked right. by something called state preemption, which we're going to go through yeah. in just a moment. Hey, y'all getting a master class right now. That's a little bit of the book. That's a little, that's bit, a little bit of the book. book. That's a little, a little bit of the book. Sneak peek. Little sneak peek. I want to. I want to double back to the to the voting. Yeah. How would you respond to the narrative like, "Oh man, voting don't help black folks"? That's a very common narrative that I hear um, discussed in a lot of spaces that I'm in, particularly in some of the spaces where folks have been deeply, deeply impacted by the criminal legal system and have lost the right to vote. So, and, and, and even giving more context yeah. for myself, yeah. when I think of voting, I think of, of how is my group, community, culture, black people, black Americans, yeah. benefiting from this as a group. Yes. Not as an individual, but as a group. As and a that group. thing, and that for me means socially and economically yes tangibles very very good point and so when that's when i think about of the the purpose of voting for me purpose uh specifically yes so with that i want thank you for that added context because i think it's going to re relate to the the analogy that i'm about to use so so when i think about voting in the process of voting we talked about that history of how black people for so long were denied mm -hmm. the right to vote and then finally got the right to vote but really didn't have access to the vote because of jim crow laws and some of these poll taxes other things um, and so I see voting in many ways as I see the fingers on the hand, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you might be able to operate your hand without a thumb. Right. You might. You might. But it's going to make it difficult for you to grasp things because right. the opposable thumbs for human beings is something that makes us very effective at being able to manipulate and move things, grab things. So voting is like one of your fingers, right? It, yeah. it's, it's a finger on the hand that is used to be effective in actually moving things along and getting things uh, uh, done, but you can't do that just in isolation. If all you do is vote, but you're not educating yourself about right. the importance of how it is that voting is connected to your rights and your right. process. 
people who are selected to be a part of the community oversight board, for example, or to serve on juries right. because of registered voters. Right. That's how they select those folks. Right. So if you're not registered to vote and you're not able to do that, it's hard for you to be able to participate right. in a lot of those processes, for example. You, you got to also connect voting not only with education, but with empowerment. You, gotta, you can't do that just in isolation by yourself. You need an organization or a group right. to be a part of so that you can ultimately work together right. to be able to address the material concerns and needs of your community. So organizing another is another one of those mm -hmm. fingers on the hand that you got to be able to use. And then it's important for you to be able to really connect with your economic power. Because right. if you're not voting at the, the polling place, but you're spending your money with people who are oppressing you, right. then you, you're undermining your own power, your own credibility as, a, as an individual and a person in the community who has that power. So, so it's all a part of and parcel to the process of self-empowerment. Right. Voting is one of those tools, one of those fingers on the hand, but it, but it done in isolation doesn't really help you to build the mighty fist that you're going to need to be able to fight against right. these structures and systems that have been oppressing our people for millennia. When I, when I think about voting, the tangibles, the economics, right? Mm -hmm. Now we have more black elected officials in elected seats than ever in yeah. the state, legislator, yeah. local. We, we, mm -hmm. It's more than ever because, yeah. you know, opportunities, yes. right? Yes. But things economically seem to be the same. Yes. And some things are worse. Yeah. Home ownership is about the same. Yeah. Actually, the ownership of land is down. Yeah. Um, incarceration is up. Yeah. We're more yeah. educated, mm -hmm. but we don't have any more wealth yeah. as a group. Yeah. Um, then we had before we were 65, 64. Um, and so how do we get voting or building political power to affect those things as a group? I know you and I can make it individual. We can go make a million, billion dollars, whatever. Yeah, yeah. We, can, we, we know successful black people. Yeah. Um, but as a group, we're still in the same, if not worse place. Yeah than we were when we could vote. That's why you hear many of my elders saying, hey, I wish we could just really go back, like segregation. Yeah, yeah. Because the, we the had separate, more. The separate part <laughs> yeah, wasn't the part right, that was the problem. Right. It was the equal part. <laughs> it was the equal part. Like, we had more. We, you know, and so how can we, what, what is, does the system, and this is my thing too, like, pouring into a system that I know that's against me, that's yeah. not for me, yeah. but it's like, I, but participating in it, how does it all get tangled up and is it a fixable way yeah. to get around it to where we actually see who we vote for yes. be reflected in actually the system um, doing what it's supposed to do to help black folks specifically, but everybody, but black folks well, specifically. Black folks specifically we talking about. Um, yeah. In these social constructs. That Man, that's something. That's such a fundamental question. So I'll answer it a couple different ways. So one of the things that was at the heart of your question is like, you know, so what's really happened because of voting, right? What's really changed? And in a lot of ways, unfortunately, I'm gonna be honest with you, um, there was an article that I read um, a couple of days ago um, that's written, I believe, as a part of the commemoration and continuation of the, uh, the March on Washington, which will be uh, celebrated or commemorated in about uh, the 60-year anniversary is this year. Uh, folks are going to be gathered in Washington, D.C., representatives from a few different organizations that I'm mm -hmm. a part of will be there in D.C. Um, uh, during the commemoration, and they've described it as a, con a continuation, not just a commemoration of the March on Washington. Uh, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s son, um, Martin III, has penned an article 
uh, and a thought piece about what has changed in the intervening 60 years. Uh, and sadly, uh, not, not enough right. has changed. Uh, and so in many ways, when we start talking about the importance of voting, people point to that example and say, see, ain't nothing changed. Me voting doesn't make a difference. It's not important. Uh, and I understand both the frustration yeah. and in many ways share the, 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 the sentiment uh, that people should have about, you know, what little progress has been made. But I want to I encourage us to think, um, I'm a big fan of black futurism, right? And so I, I think about uh, the ways in which we vision different possible worlds and yeah. vision different possibilities uh, where black people uh, um, uh, are able to have and achieve a measure of liberation and freedom. Yeah. Um, and so what I think about is the fact that when we had so little, yeah. When we had, you know, when we were just coming out of, or even in many ways were still in the, in the moment of, historical moment of chattel slavery, yeah. there were those folks who stood up yeah. and who fought back. There were yeah. the, uh, uh, the, the public intellectuals and the, and the, you know, the, the muckrakers and the good troublemakers of their time, yeah. uh, the Harriet Tubmans and, the, uh, um, uh, and, the, and, and so many others yeah. who, who were part of that legacy of Frederick fighting Douglas. back. Frederick Douglas, Douglas right? Like, so, it's so many. They was all doing that same. All during that same time, That's right? Crazy. Martin Delaney, and, yes. you know, so many um, people Man. who were fighting back and saying that we are not allowed, we're not going to roll over and lay down and yeah. allow this system to destroy us. Uh, and so, these examples of, of freedom fighters and liberators who are a part of this long legacy, we have a responsibility in picking up the mantle. Yeah. To take up, to take our place among yeah. those luminaries and say, you know what, this is what contribution I'm going to make. Yeah. Uh, and I've chosen the lane of voting and voter right. empowerment as one of those places where I can stake my claim and say, you know what, we're going to fight for every inch. Everybody got their lane. And and so, you know, during the process <laughs> of of redistricting, which I know is yeah. a, a, I mean, I, I say the word redistricting, and just we're going to have to rebrand that thing because <laughs> people's eyes glaze over. But here's why. I mentioned and why it's right. important. So every ten years, red line, right? Red line. Let's call it what it red is. Red line is what it is. Exactly. So, so when we talk about what happens in communities, every ten years, the U.S. Census does a, an enumeration count of all the people in the country, right. and they do that not because they're trying to track your social media, they're trying to get at you. They do that because they want to make sure that numerically we understand who's here and who is, a, who is going to be drawing down on resources. It's all about money. Who can pour into the funds. Who can pour into where the funds, where the tax the dollars going to come from, all of those things. So every 10 years, they do that census enumeration. And people who are counted during that census enumeration, some of them are American citizens, some of them are green card holders, some of them are undocumented folks, some of them are, you know, folks who have been incarcerated or detained. And so everybody gets enumerated. Here's why that matters. When you count the number of people in the country and you know where they are and where the resources should be allocated, that's ideally where you should send the bulk of the resources right. for infrastructure projects and highways. I know here in Nashville, folks get, get hit pot oil every, every other day. <laughs> that's, mess, that's messing every, with your Every other street. Every other street. <laughs> and so the money that comes in to address yeah. those, you know, those state and local issues as money coming drawn down by tax dollars, which are made possible by the census enumeration and redistricting. Mm -hmm. Here's why that matters to the political context. When they draw those lines, you may be drawn into or out of a district that allows you to be able to coalesce with your neighbors to build a block of power. Mm -hmm. And when they when they bifurcate those lines and break up communities mm -hmm. with, with, with cracking and with fracking, with other kinds of forms of, of undermining the power in those communities, that generally targets black and brown communities and working class mm -hmm. communities specifically. Right. In the Nashville context, that's what happened in our congressional districts. Right. And those congressional districts that then made the city of Nashville which was one unified district into three fractured districts mm -hmm. spread out in three different directions, 
that then makes it more difficult for Nashvillians to be able to elect the, the representative of their choice. Right. So you don't have as much power, as much influence in Washington, D.C. in the allocation of those resources and addressing the needs and concerns in Nashville as you would have with Nashville being a unified district. And so in order to be able to participate in that process and to elect those uh, people of, of your choice, yeah. you've got to be involved in that process of redistricting, understand how it works, yeah. understand that it happens every 10 years and the next one's going to be happening in 2030. Yeah. And what else is going to be happening around 2030, right? The demographic shift right. of what is happening in this community, both in Nashville and in the state of Tennessee right. and in nationally in the country, right. America is poised to become at, at, for the first time, a majority uh, a people of color right. community, a majority people of color uh, a country. Right. And that's going to have some far-reaching implications mm -hmm. in how resources are allocated in the community in the United States right. and, through, and, and in the state of Tennessee as well as in the local community. So if you want to have a, a stake right. in that process, you got to be engaged in as many ways as possible. Right. But there are a lot of folks who have been pushed out of that process. And so they're like, I don't care about no voting. I, I lost the right to vote anyway. I'm a right. felon. I got this, that, and the other thing. Even folks who have been impacted by the criminal legal system have a role to play. Right. And there are may, many ways in which we are reimagining democratic institutions mm -hmm. to provide folks with an opportunity to plug in. That looks right. like things like people's assemblies, for right. example. So the Nashville People's Budget Coalition is one of those examples of a people's assembly where yeah. folks, no matter where you come from, all you got to be is from, in, in, all you got to do is be in Nashville right. to plug into that process and be able to say, well, this is what I think some of these tax dollars need to go to. Mm -hmm. in, in groups like the Black Nashville Assembly, for example, black right. people are coming together from all walks of life in community and saying, these are the issues that we need to center right. as a part of our black politic, right. as a part of our black cultural education, so that we can center the needs and the concerns of our growing community right. so that we don't forget our priorities when it comes election time, yeah. when it comes to the issues of when we select individuals who are going to be representing us, whether right. or not they're black folks, are they centering our needs and right. concerns as a community? Which brings me to a one, one issue that I really want to say before we, we take the break. A, a lot of folks have been looking at and seeing what has been happening in this most recent election. Yeah, oh, well, let's get into it. Well, let me, before you get into that, before you get We're gonna into that. We're going to take the step back. Okay, I yeah. want to take the step back. I mm -hmm. want to take the step back. Before you get into that, because I think we got to, before we get into that, we got to deal with, again, as black people, when we see candidates a lot of times, regardless of what they were running for, it's like, right. okay, they're black. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks, because of our blackness, because of our unique experience, we just going to say, hey, man, they black, we're going to vote for them. Like Obama, black, like, president, right, black, black right. I'm doing it. And right. then what happens, whether it's two years later, four years later, eight years later, whatever it may be, we say, damn, <laughs> they didn't do nothing for black people. <laughs> right. right. Which is a common theme. Like, what did they do for black people? Uh -huh. They didn't do anything for black people, right? Right. Um, and, and, and to even more context, we're in a country that hasn't done anything exclusively to benefit black people on no type of level, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. especially a federal level. Right. Like that's just, they do something for people of color, minorities. They use all these other broad terms, but exclusively for black people, like reparations has not happened, which, right. is, which is one of the... And other, and other groups have gotten yeah, reparations. Yeah, yeah other groups mm -hmm. have gotten That's one of my biggest things, like, like some about black, exclusively doing some of black, we just, we have, it's the anti-blackness. Right. But anyway. Right, anti-blackness yeah, deeply at the yeah. root of it. Yeah. And so, um, so whether it's eight years later, we like, damn, they didn't do nothing for black people. Um, speak on that a little bit as far as some of voting strategy, psychological standpoint, mm -hmm. as being a black person. Yes. 
And when you see another black person, it's like, man, well, they black, but man, they 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 they, they IDs, they ideology don't don't seem like they in black interests. Right. And so right. talking back to that, that whole quote about, you know, not permanent friends, permanent interests. I mean not permanent enemies, but permanent interests. There's another um another saying, you know, that I think and we talked about the Montgomery Brawl just briefly. Uh, Shirley Chisholm uh, would talk about how, you know, if they don't bring you, uh, they won't let you uh, be at the table, you need to bring a folding chair, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but what we as black people have to be very intentional about yeah. in our understanding, and we have to be sophisticated in our analysis. Right. Just because a person has a, a black skin doesn't mean they don't have bought interests. We right. have to be very, very careful right. about the ways in which we interact with and engage with political uh, actors and folks who are in positions or entrusted with positions of authority. Because uh, in, in truth, they are not the folks, folks who have the power. We have the power. Right. The community, the people always have the have power. People always. Power. Yeah. People always have the power. You've got to understand that there are people who are operating on the other side of that equation, yeah. though. Um, special interest groups and others who are trying to mitigate the power that you already have. Uh, and so we need to understand very, very intimately the difference between representation and empowerment. Mm. There's lots of black people in positions of power, but if there are not black issues that are centered in those positions of power, we are missing the mark. Mm. We bar. got, listen. A bar. <laughs> Black people have got to be just as sophisticated in our analysis of power mm -hmm. as our opposition is. Mm -hmm. Because they, you better believe, they understand right. exactly what is going on with right. that power. Here's an example of what that looks like in the Tennessee context. Uh, so recently I learned about this organization describing itself as the Tennessee Three Pack. So a lot of folks who are in the audience who right. are in Tennessee and Nashville, y'all know about the Tennessee Three, you know about Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, uh, Gloria Johnson, and their protest right. in the well of the state capitol uh, in the aftermath of the Covenant shooting. So these folks are coming in, they're saying, look, we gotta do something about these uh, guns and the accessibility to these guns, the gun violence is at an epidemic level. Our children, uh, our three children and three administrators at the Covenant School here in Green Hills in Nashville, shot and killed by an armed shooter. We got to do something. We cannot allow this right. to continue. And so understanding this and the ethos, the zeitgeist of the moment, uh, there were some very sophisticated folks, uh, I will say that they're in the opposition, uh, who want to do nothing about gun violence, right. who in fact are taking uh, support from gun lobbyists and gun manufacturers and don't want to hear from the voices of the people who have been impacted by gun violence. So this special session that's going to be starting in a couple days on Monday, uh, folks are trying to center and have concerns and conversations about the need for reforms to mm -hmm. address these issues and concerns around public safety. But instead, our governor wants to talk about uh, what we're going to do about mental health, which again, I'm not saying mental health is not a concern or an issue. Right. We absolutely need to be doing background checks and making sure that folks right. who are not mentally unwell or a danger to themselves or to other people right. are getting access to dangerous weapons. Absolutely, true, we agree there. But the other side in the proclamation says, we're gonna be talking about what we need to do to enhance punishments for juvenile offenders who use a gun to commit a crime. That's not what we asked for. Right. We didn't say in an instance where young people are being shot and killed by bad actors who have weapons that what we need to be doing is further criminalizing the young people right. who have access to these weapons rather than doing something about the access for individuals who shouldn't have the guns. They got the wrong message. Right. They didn't understand the assignment. Yeah, they did. The reality was people were demanding that we do something about mm -hmm. access to these weapons so that we can stop this mass carnage right. and these mass shootings that are occurring on a regular basis. 
But the opposition heard, oh, what you want us to do is you want us to further criminalize young people who get access to a gun. That's what you're saying. That's not what we said at all. So what I'm saying about that is this. When they saw the Tennessee Three into the well, uh, they expelled Justin Jones, Justin Pearson. They were later reinstalled and have now been reelected to the state legislature. Shout out to the people of Nashville and Memphis yeah. who represent Districts 51 uh, and 86, doing what they could to make sure that those voices remain at the table. But the opposition didn't go to sleep. No. They decided they would create an organization called the Tennessee Three Pack. People thinking, oh, well, here's my opportunity on a national scale, on a local scale, to sow resources and money into the Tennessee Three Pack mm -hmm. to support these, these folks, Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, uh, and Gloria Johnson, to make sure that they can continue their good work. But no, 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 no. If you follow the money yeah. and you recognize who it is that's registered the Tennessee Three Pack, it's a group of conservative Republican bundlers, many of whom have associations and connections with the NRA and with other kinds of gun manufacturing groups and gun rights groups. So this is literally the opposition mm. using the phantasm of the Tennessee Three image to try to raise money for opposition to everything that they stand for. Finesse. Finessing, right? We've seen the finesse all the time. We hear about it in the news, and they often will put a black or brown face right. on the person doing the finessing, but very often the mm -hmm. people who are really doing the finessing, right. the people who are really using these structures and systems yeah. to benefit and in some instances to mm. undermine the power that we are building mm. are folks who are standing on the opposite side of the dynamic that we are trying to create. So it's very important right. that we follow the money. It's very important that we understand who these actors are, what, what they're representing, and what positions they actually hold, whether or not they claim to be representing our interests. Because again, we gotta turn back to the understanding of the difference between representation right. and empowerment. Right. Just because somebody say they with you don't mean they really with you. And you got to make sure you always look for the receipts. Don't sit, don't just look at the seat, right. look for the receipts. Because you got to see where these people get their money from and who's really backing them to truly understand what their values are. Oh, man. Because you're coming back. You're coming back. <laughs> you, you, he's going to be a regular guest. We're going to be back. I'm gonna be, we're going to be back. We're going to definitely do an aftermath oh, show yeah, sure. to talk we, about. We're going to do something quarterly, at least. <laughs> at minimum. Um, yes. Taking everything that you said, and this is kind of why I want us to close on and leave gotcha. people just, just thinking. Yeah. Mayoral election. Yeah. We had... One, two, three, four, five black mayoral candidates? Five black mayoral candidates. I right. That's five right. black mayoral candidates, mm -hmm. right? Now, talk about strategy. <laughs> <laughs> we talking about strategy. We're talking about strategy. And when we talk about strategy, I know people, that, that right. sounds like a, a very fancy word. But when, yeah. we, when we say strategy, what we really mean is numbers. We're talking about What numbers. will be informing the numbers based on how right. you do the work? Nashville is a supermajority white city. Black people is a super minority. We're right. not Memphis. Right. Right. We're not Memphis. Memphis is 70% black, Nashville is closer to 30%. And when right. you talk about the people who are actually, actually registered to vote right. and who engage the process, it's probably closer to like 17, 15%. Wow. Yeah. So, and we, you know, no vote Tennessee. People do not turn out to vote in this oh state. Oh my God. Tennessee's state. 50th in yeah. the country yeah. in voter participation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. there you go. So, all that. Ain't but 50 states. Yeah, ain't number 50. So, y'all do the math. We, do the we math. at the bottom. Yeah. Ain't no, yeah. we can't go below us. Right. <laughs> well, with all of that, <laughs> we talk about numbers and strategies with all of that now. If we wanted to even get a black mayor elected, it's hard to do. Hard to do. Damn near impossible. It would take coalition support. It wouldn't just be black people alone. Right. It? Right, exactly. But do you feel 
going forward with that coalition building, if we do feel we want and need a black mayor, um, one that's also representative of just not only blackness, but ideas and all of the things we talked about just yes. previously, right? Yeah. Number-wise and strategy-wise, do you believe it would make sense for coalition organizations, community to get behind, whether it's a secret closed-door meeting, whatever, right? get behind one candidate yeah. and push him or her? I think it's critical that black people understand, and I mentioned this before earlier in my remarks, we got to understand very, very intimately the importance of centering black needs and concerns yeah. in community, no matter who's in the position of power, yeah. no matter who is elected to the seat, yeah. our interests need to be at the table. Because right. if we are not at the table, we are likely on the menu. Right. So if we are not centering whatever those concerns are, be they public safety, mm -hmm. public education, public health, uh, if we're not addressing the issues of infrastructure, because all of those things are black issues. We got right. a public housing and a, and a public uh, 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 a public uh, an access to affordable housing and accessible housing challenge in yeah. Nashville right now. And many of the folks who are most impacted by that are working class folks, most of them black, brown, working class white folks. We are all issue-based folks, right. and we're not just one issue. Right. So the idea of it being just a black candidate who's going to re represent those interests is, I think, a, maybe a flawed analysis. Mm. We've got to understand the ways that we center black needs and concerns in community issues around equity, diversity, inclusion, belonging, all of those things need to be articulated in a way that are addressing the needs and the concerns of the folks who are most impacted. Right. People who are impacted by the criminal legal system need to be the ones who are making the rules and informing the policies around those kinds of structures and right. systems. If we're not doing that, then we're not really meeting the needs and the concerns mm. of the people. Uh, so what we need to be really doing is making sure that whoever is ultimately elected, be it mayor, vice mayor, uh, city council, school board, the local dog catcher. Right. We need to make sure whoever that person is that they are informed about the needs and the concerns of our community right. and that they have a direct way to plug into people who are credible messengers right. and trusted people in our community right. so that they are very well informed of what is important to us. And in that way, we get black issues centered whether or not we have a black candidate or a black person in that position of power. But I think that what we can't do is we can't allow ourselves to rest on our laurels and allow this to be just an election by election thing. Elections right. come every two years, four years, six years, I think, for Senate. Uh, you're right. Judges are elected, but many of them are lifetime appointments. So eight can, years here. Eight years yeah. in some instances. Yeah. So and, and so what we got to do is we got to make sure that when we're selecting uh, these candidates or we're putting our money and our, our votes and our support behind these individuals, that we very clearly, number one, we understand what their platform is, mm -hmm. what, what issues they really are centering in, those, in their platforms and whether or not they align with our interests and our values. Yeah. We also got to understand um, the context in which we are operating. So, you know, Nashville is one of those cities, like you said, we're not a majority black city. We're probably a majority people of color city when we yeah. talk about uh, uh, indigenous folks and, yeah. and immigrants Land and other folks. Yeah. yeah. And then we talk about the working class dynamic. We got to yeah. have a really good analysis that is very informed in both race and class narratives mm -hmm. so that we can do outreach to the various and disparate parts of our community and bring folks together. Shout out to groups like the National Justice League, yeah. uh, the Equity Alliance and uh, Turk Votes and yeah. uh, the Central Labor Council who are bringing together those folks who are talking about those race class narratives in a meaningful yeah. and powerful way. 
Um, but we got to do more of that. We've got to do more of that community collaboration mm -hmm. to bring people to the table who have sent, uh, uh, the same kinds of issues and concerns around the issues that matter most to Nashvilleians. Mm -hmm. uh, we got to make sure that we keep lines of communication open with those folks. And we cannot, there's no way of dismissing and throwing away people. We have in our politics very much a transactional kind of situation. It's yeah. not relational. Yeah. And much of the organizing work that I do is all about relationship building. It's all about relationship People building. don't care how much you know yeah. until they know how much you care. Right. You gotta show up for them when they need you. Yeah. That's why it's so important when things and disasters happen in our communities and we have the opportunity to come together, we gotta bring everybody to the table yeah. to make a contribution. And it's not gonna always look the same. I, I mentioned also that I, my background is in is in music. I did did some uh, some singing with the Jubilee Singers. He's an all Jubilee singer. Right. <laughs> do some uh, do some work now with with the Wakanda Chorale, uh, the W. Krim Singers. Uh, what I've learned from that that has informed my organizing is everybody can sing from the same music sheet. Yeah. But we all don't have to sing the same part. I'm a bass. Yeah. I can't sing the soprano mm. part. But we need the sopranos part to be mm. strong. We need the altos to be strong. We need the tenor section to be real strong. Mm. Everybody's got to bring their strengths together yeah. so that the ensemble can create a yeah. beautiful and meaningful piece of music. And organizing and voting and mm. all of the elements of civic engagement right. are a part of creating the, the tapestry orchestra. of that beautiful orchestra and chorus and the music that we are singing together. Everybody ain't going to sing the same part. Right. But we all got to sing together right. on the same beat right. from the same music sheet right. so that we can ma help make sure that we're all in tune. We, we all can't have a solo. And, and everybody ain't going to get <laughs> a solo. Everybody, everybody ain't going to get a solo. But it's the man. ensemble yeah. that makes beautiful music together. Timothy, man, I really appreciate this, man. And everybody, he's he's coming back. He's doing these master classes. But we're gonna keep doing it. We're gonna keep doing it, but like consistently having these conversations talking about voter engagement, what that means, what that looks like from a strategy, from a numbers, but also from a solution based lens of like what can we do to play our part. And I hope people really grasp that, man. So yeah. I appreciate you. Thank you. Yes. Flowers given to Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and we did it. Yeah, we did it, man. <laughs> if, if you will allow me, if you will allow me, I'm yeah. gonna end this, I'm gonna end yeah. this um, the way that I usually end a lot of my talks and trainings uh, with a quote from one of my favorite luminaries in my head. I tell everybody I got these mentors in my head. Uh, Asada Shakur who said, it is our duty to fight for our people. It is our duty to win. We must love and support one another for we have nothing to lose but our chains. Thank you.